Conservative. Constitutional. It's the Andrew Cooper Writer Show, keeping you informed on what's going on right here in Kentucky. And good morning, everybody, or afternoon, depending on when you're listening. Welcome to the Andrew Cooper Writer Show. Of course, I'm your host, Andrew Cooper Writer. I know yesterday's show was maybe a little bit more depressing. I heard from a lot of you. You guys said, Andrew is great. You know, we're hearing about things going on at Berea College with the communists. We're learning about our budget and how it's just an absolute tire fire and nothing's conservative in it, like, at all. But it was a little depressing because there was not a whole lot of hope in it. But today's show, hopefully... You do find some hope because there's some great bills, a package of education bills that State Senator Lindsay Tishner has filed, and a lot of them are important. One or two of them, maybe one of them specifically, I don't think is as important. So, of course, I'll probably be the one that the legislature actually passes, but there's a few of them that are very important and can forever change the educational system here in Kentucky with our public schools. And so we'll be digging into that as well. But first, to start us off, those who listened yesterday, right here on the Andrew Cooperator Show, know I went into the budget and I brought up about trying to figure out where billions of dollars of funding, above normal funding, in our restricted funds in both our capital projects as well as our state executive branch line items, where that funding was coming from. And uh, one of my representative contacts, good good guy, nice guy, he uh, is on the ANR committee, and so he reached out to the uh, staff of the budget, the people who put together the budget for the state, and asked them some of my questions that I had. And basically what they responded with was, uh, uh, they're like, you got to be more specific. Because restricted funds, you know, this billions of dollars of funds, they say, could come from a lot of different services. It could come from taxes, licenses, fees, tuition, service charges, sale of goods or products, donations or grants, from non-state sources, expendable recipes, whatever that means, and earnings from trust-type programs. That was some of the examples they gave. But they didn't really answer the question of where, where though, is billions coming from. They're like, well, you got to look at a specific project, which is a little crazy that we have $14 billion in the restricted fund total, $24 billion in the other total. That totals $38 billion. And they're like, I mean, there's not one big project. It's just a bunch of little projects we're doing, I guess. Um, obviously, that isn't super clear with the budget. So I did respond back, and I said, okay, let me ask this very simple question. Can any of the money in those restricted funds in both capital projects and executive budget be from debt, bonds, or any other kind of revenue source that would require we pay it off into the future? Because that is, at the end of the day, the brass tax I want to know. Now, I do want to know if it's coming from taxation or other places, because if we're bringing in billions of dollars, and it's not just like grants from private institutions or perhaps the state government, or, or I'm sorry, the federal government giving us that money. I mean, that's still our tax dollars. But if it's not coming from those places, then those are regulations that are extremely under the legislature's control. And frankly speaking, um, you know, $74 billion is a lot of money to spend, a lot more than we've ever spent in the past. I mean, typically when you look at the budgets, the first year is a little bit higher, the second year is lower. So last year is a lower year at that $48 billion, but even the year before that, it was only 52 
So even with all that COVID money coming in from the federal government, it was only $52 billion. So this is still another $22 billion more than our big year two years ago. And so, you know, where's that money coming from? Is it our federal government? Or are we being overtaxed, paying too much for licenses, those kinds of things? Or are you going into debt? I want to know. So I did ask that question. So if I get a response, I will be first to let you all know. I'll let you know right away as soon as I get a response about where that money is coming from because we need to get to the bottom of it. And I think you all would agree. Outside of that, um, before we go into talking about Lindsay Tishner's bills, I do want to take a moment to call out a, a just a ridiculous op-ed from a so-called Republican. He calls himself a Republican that was published in the Herald Leader. And it's titled, Kentucky Students Need Education, Not Handguns. Now, this is by William Woods. And let me tell you, Woods, okay, <laughs> you, buddy, need some education. The amount you get wrong about uh, uh, the the bill and everything else um, – it's just absolutely crazy to me because you you didn't read the bill and you also don't understand the current place our laws are. So let's dig into this op-ed on, on, on uh, this. It's rather short, so we'll just kind of go through here. He starts off by saying this, William Wood, 3.30 a.m. on a Saturday, I'm reviewing bills filed in the Kentucky State House. There are no words to describe the repulsiveness in some of the 300-plus bills filed. You'd think, of course, he's talking about the Democrat bills, but he's he's truly not. He's not. He's talking about Republican bills, even though later on he calls himself a Republican. But we'll get to that. Anyways, admittedly, those uh, though both parties have lost their minds, I truly believe most Kentuckians fall somewhere in the middle where common sense and integrity meet when it comes to politics. However, for the life of me, I can't wrap my head around some of the bills that could impact all of us in the near future. This past month, several children have been killed in Kentucky, all from gunshot wounds. Still, there's a bill filed, House Bill 259, that's from Savannah Maddox, that would allow an 18-year-old to carry a concealed weapon, have these elected leaders no shame, do they really think handing a high schooler, a high school senior a Glock is the best use of time? Of our time. Okay, so let's rewind here because there's a lot that he just said there that is completely wrong. First off, House Bill 259 does not allow an 18 year old to carry uh, any weapon, it allows them to carry a weapon concealed. So when he says they already, by the way, can open carry a handgun, they can't purchase one, but they can open carry one as long as they got it from the right places. So when he says, is handing a high school senior a Glock the best use of our time, the bill in no way, shape, or form would one allow 18 year olds to get better access to Glocks than they currently have under current law. That's the first thing. Second thing, or any other handgun for that matter, not just Glocks, Glocks aren't being singled out. But the second thing is, is that remember this 18 year old can already open carry that handgun. So even if you're saying, well, I know they're not literally buying them Glocks and giving them to them, but they're allowing them to carry them. No, 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 they're not. They're, they're already allowed to carry the gun. In fact, uh, it's constitutional. It's, it, it's extremely constitutionally shaky grounds to say you cannot carry a handgun if you're under 21 because that's, it, it's, it's a right to bear arms regardless of the type. Now you say, Andrew, 21-year-olds can't purchase firearms. That's a whole different thing at the federal level and a whole different regulation. But it actually is they, can only, they, can, um, they cannot purchase firearms from a registered gun dealer unless they're at least 21 FFL dealer, but like their dad can give them a gun that they can own and be 18 years old and it'd be a handgun. That's completely allowed. 
So anyways, so first he says, is Hane and Glock best use of our time? That's not what the bill does. It simply allows 18 to 21-year-olds to throw their shirt over their gun to conceal it and it be legal. They can currently open carry it where it's legal to open carry it, but they can't cover it. The other thing he's implying here with the uh, high school thing is that they would be carrying these guns on school campuses. But remember, um, school grounds are still quote-unquote gun-free zones. So... This law also like wouldn't allow a kid to walk around in high school with a Glock. Uh, that's what he's implying. But anyways, we continue. Most Americans are afraid to send their kids to school. Now we have folks working to pass legislation that would inevitably lead to more death. This is draconian. Once again, this bill has no standpoint on whether or not kids can bring guns to school. Kids would still not be allowed to legally bring guns to school. What the fact that they can, when they're outside the school now, instead of just open carrying the gun that can cover it with their shirt will lead to them now carrying the gun in the school. Like it's already illegal. That's my point. So what you think, well, you're allowing them to conceal carry. Yeah, but they're still not allowed to conceal carry on uh, school campuses. They also can open carry on it. And do you really think that if a high school senior wants to bring a gun to school, do you really think where it's already illegal? Do you really think he cares about the fact that he's not allowed to conceal carry a weapon. I mean, really? Do you really think that? I, I mean, the critical thing in this article is out of control. I'm only about halfway through it. There's a lot more he said that is completely and utterly stupid. But you'll have to wait till after this short break. We'll finish this up and then go into Lindsay Tishner's bills. We'll see you here shortly. And you are back with the Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics. Of course, I'm your host, Andrew Cooper. I want to reach out to the show. Feel free to email info at theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's info at theandrewshow.com. Before the break, we are talking about William Woods's op-ed in the Herald-Leader. He's going after Savannah Maddox's House Bill 259, a bill that would allow 18-year-olds to conceal carry a handgun. It's going over the fact that, remember, currently 18-year-olds can possess a handgun and they can open carry a handgun in Kentucky. Um, this would just allow them to be able to throw their shirt over a gun that they're carrying on their hips. And of course, he's Somehow change this into about school shootings, despite the fact this bill does nothing to actually approach the entire gun-free zone or to allow that child to now carry a child, that 18-year-old, technically an adult, to carry a gun on to school campus. But anyways, he says this is draconian. This is uncivilized. This is as much as I've tried to comprehend it. It is incomprehensible and undoubtedly the legislative signature on the death certificate of Kentucky children, this is in no way should be viewed as leadership. He's literally like, this is a lot of conjecture. This is a lot of very angry words about how somehow House Bill 259 will lead to massive death because 18 year olds will be legally allowed when they're not at school. Keep in mind, gun free zones, also banks and everything else. They'll be legally allowed to instead just open carry their handgun, now throw their shirt over it. And this is going to, this is signing death certificates, according to Woods. Talk about conjecture. Talk about not even understanding the basics of what the bill does. But he also doesn't understand what the basic laws are now. Let me get to uh, a little more evidence of that in the article. So I can only speak to my party as I'm a lifelong Republican. <laughs> I just, these people, I'm a lifelong Republican. Look, you're not a Republican. You've kept yourself as a Republican for so long because you think it makes you sound cool and interesting around your liberal and Democrat friends. That's what it is. These people, there's a lot of these people out there 
that call themselves lifelong Republicans. I'm a really great Republican. I'm, I'm a real Republican, let me tell you. And at the end of the day, um, they, they really have just kept the R next to their name because they want to seem edgy. Or if anything, they, they are basically socially liberals. They're uh, liberal values. They have liberal values almost everywhere. But when it comes to spending, they think they have more conservative beliefs on spending. But now these days, as those who listen to like my budget thing yesterday, it seems like the only thing Democrats and Republicans disagree on is not how much to spend, but what to spend it on. Um, is it is it to be given out to big corporations, creating handouts and economic development, quote unquote, basically, re, you know, redistributing wealth to the top one percent? Or is government there to spend money on social welfare programs for individuals. That's that's the only disagreement right now between most elected Republicans and Democrats on the budget. But at least a lot of them, some Republicans, conservative ones, will have social values. But he doesn't have any conservative social values at all. You know, because the right to keep and bear arms is a social value that is directly in the Republican Party platform. But he goes on to say, that these so-called leaders, URC, proposing such astonishingly flawed and characterless legislation aren't real Republicans. It's true, they may go around calling folks like you and I rhinos, but they are the real Republicans in name only. They've hijacked our party for their own selfish and fraudulent reasons. We are in an article about the Second Amendment, something that has been in the Republican Party platform for a, a while. I mean, at this point right now, the Republican Party platform says that peop that the, the right to keep and bear arms uh, should be held close, that people's constitutional values shouldn't be, uh, uh, and, and the right to bear arms is a constitutional right, and it shouldn't be abridged, and as well, people have a right to due process before that is taken away from them. That is in our Republican Party platform, and as it's wrote right now, it has been in there at least for the last eight years but also in some form or another, much longer than that as well. So he wants to say like, oh, you guys are the rhino. Meanwhile, we're the ones following the Republican Party platform. The one thing that you as a Republican are supposed to follow. So no, you're wrong, Woods. You are not a Republican. You're literally talking against the Republican Party platform and then calling yourself the real Republican. You are mistaken. But he goes on. He says that these folks aren't leaders. They don't care about you or your family, and they surely don't care about your children. If the, if the, av if the average citizen advocated for this, we would label them dis domestic terrorists. Now, I'm, I, I would say I'm a pretty average citizen. Granted, I do uh, do this every day, five days a week, where I talk about conservative issues in Kentucky and Granted, I, I'm uniquely have the time to do that. I'm a business owner. I, you know, employ dozens of people and so on and so forth. But I'm I'm pretty average citizen. And I do advocate for this. Actually, many do. And he just labeled us all domestic terrorists. I mean, if you think, let me ask you. Right now, the law is that an 18-year-old can open carry a gun can own a handgun, just can't purchase one from FFL dealer. The only thing they can't do that an adult can do outside of purchase a gun from, or a 21 year old can do outside of purchase a gun from FFL dealer is throw their shirt over their gun as they're carrying it. Now, the fact that you think that an 18 year old doesn't, isn't just stuck to having to put a gun on their hip and carry it around 
but can put a gun on their hip and throw their shirt over it and then carry it around. The very fact you think they can throw a shirt over it to Woods, what he's saying, now he probably doesn't really understand what he's saying, and, and he proves this later on, he, he's literally, this might be the stupidest person I've ever read an op-ed for. It might be. I mean, he did no research. Into the, honestly, it's flabbergasting to me that the Herald Leader even published this article with the amount of just conjecture and incorrect foundational fact is. I mean, you can, you can say, here's what the bill does, here's why I think it's wrong, but you can't just create your own facts about the bill, but that's what he's doing. So he's saying that people like you and me who would throw a shirt over the gun, we're domestic terrorists because that's what we believe in. So he says, why should our legislators be treated any different? So he's saying that the person who puts forward a bill to allow uh, uh, a 18-year-old to, to throw a shirt over the gun and said just carry it, open carry it on their hip, is a domestic terrorist and should be treated as such. And we citizens who are advocating for it are also domestic terrorists. He follows up by saying, surely the chaos to follow this action would be devastating. Who will be responsible for the deaths? Who will bear the burden and answer the question, why did this student have a legally purchased handgun in AP English? Okay, so this is once again, he doesn't understand what the bill is. He doesn't understand. I mean, he basically ends there. He continues. He finishes out the article with the teacher shortage already uncontrollable. Who'll want to teach knowing their students have unfiltered access to these guns? Few, I fear. I don't. I mean, the the bill doesn't allow an 18 year old any more access to purchase firearms than they can't already. That is a federally regulated thing. The bill doesn't allow kids to carry guns in schools and it certainly doesn't allow a kid to legally purchase a handgun in ap english he could legally purchase the handgun outside of the school but not in ap english and so it's this, this is my point i i literally don't understand how he drew this out of the bill i i don't get it it's not in there and so I guess he just didn't read it. I mean, he said it was 3.30 in the morning. He was going through this. Maybe he needs to sit down, drink a few cups of coffee before old Woods here comes to the conclusion that people who support this bill are domestic terrorists. I mean, he did say it was 3.30 a.m. on a Saturday. Maybe he was drunk. Maybe this guy was hammered. Maybe he's completely hammered. I have to uh, uh, assume he was. I mean... And, and it does say he's a lifelong Republican. He was a apparently a former GOP gubernatorial candidate endorsed by Governor Bashir in 2019. So um, he endorsed Governor Bashir in 2019. So he's a former GOP candidate. And then he endorsed Bashir in 2019. That's four years ago. So my point stands out. Was he drunk? Obviously. Obviously. I mean, I, I just I just can't imagine why he thinks that that's what this bill does, but he's not quite done there. He does go on. I, I thought I was his last line, but he doesn't. He goes on to say the legislators supporting this bill would support it. If they cared about your children, if they cared about your children. If they cared about Kentucky, if they cared at all about what we leave behind in society, they would be spending their time working to keep guns out of the hands of our students, not advocating for what can only be foreseen as a tragic and cruel punishment on the most vulnerable members of the common. Maybe I'm wrong on what this bill. I don't think I am. This is House Bill 259, right? I mean, I'm going to I'm going to double check real quick because House Bill 259 would just allow 
kids to, I mean, the way he's talking about this bill, you'd think it allows kids to conceal carry in the school. Let's see here. Uh, House Bill 259. Sorry. I, 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 I should have double checked this, but he keeps talking about it like this and it makes me think I'm inaccurate, but no, I'm not wrong. No, House Bill 259 is amend KRS 237.109 to lower the age requirement for carrying a concealed deadly weapon from 21 to 18. So, no, I'm not crazy. No, this is just a bill. Yeah, no, this isn't a bill to legalize carrying firearms in schools. This isn't a bill to legalize 18-year-olds to suddenly buy guns and they couldn't before. I'm literally, I, I, I knew I wanted to talk about this article because I, I thought I had the bill right, and I did. But I can't. I don't understand where he drew out any of this. I mean, it's just made up. He's just making up things about what the bill does and doesn't. Um, he goes on to say, Kentucky deserves more than lackluster, self-proclaimed political stars. It is time we label these folks for what they are and what they lack. We need a backbone in our party desperately. The lives of Kentucky's children are at stake. Currently, if you give a handgun to a minor, you'll likely be jailed and convicted of a crime. Why? Because it's wrong to give a deadly weapon to a child. It's that simple. The bill doesn't, the bill doesn't allow minors to carry gun if you're over 18 it just allows you to conceal carry the gun i don't think he read the bill i don't think he read the bill i'm sorry i didn't mean to spend like almost two segments on this but i'm just so shocked that this guy is this stupid and he was a gubernatorial candidate just goes show anybody can run for office well y'all have got time for in this segment coming up after this we'll go over Lindsay tishner's educational bills she filed a lot of them we'll have more after this short break you'll listen to the andrew cooperwriter show and you are back with the Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics. Sorry I spent so long on that op-ed there. I just, just reading through that, it was just mind-boggling to me. Those of you who listened to the last segment, mind-boggling to me. The, this guy was just way off base on what this bill does. I, I still can't understand how that got published and nobody like told him, like, hey, um, this bill... Are you talking about the same bill? This bill does none of that. But anyway, speaking of bills, though, Lindsey Tishner, state senator out of Oldham County, dropped six Senate bills on education, Senate Bill 166 through 171, and several of them will literally change the way, I mean, it, this will have the, outside of passing school choice, these bills uh, uh, package, a few of them together, like I said, a few of them, not as much, will literally change the entire way education's done in Kentucky for the better. So let's dig into him. So first, she filed Senate Bill 166, uh, basically bans the use of uh, government-organized or non-governmental organizations that are based out of the People's Republic of China and education in Kentucky. So I didn't know we needed to pass a law about this. I thought that'd be pretty obvious, but when you have communists running your K-12 education, you do, I guess, need to make sure you ban them from, uh, you know, doing business with uh, China. But anyways, and using organizations to help teach that are out of China. So that's pretty clear. Senate Bill 167 is the one that I, if, if I disagreed with any of them, like at all, it would be this one. This one is just one I think it's personally, I don't think it's super important or useful, but you know, I'm from a different generation than Lindsay Tishner. So Senate Bill 167 uh, would require cursive 
and for students to be taught. So it requires cursive to be taught and for students to sign their name in cursive as a graduation requirement that they can do a signature in cursive. Now I'll tell you, I'll tell you why I think this is kind of, uh, I don't know, just kind of, it's just kind of outdated, right? I mean, like I said, different generation. I learned to do cursive. Uh, I taught my son to do cursive. My son knows how to write in cursive. Um, so, I mean, it's not like I have like a big problem with cursive per se. I mainly taught him how to read cursive because his grandma, well, she would write in cursive all the time. And a lot of, a lot of people from further generations will, will write in cursive often. You know, my dad, my mom, they'll write in cursive from time to time. And so I, I hear you, but in, in cursive is very useful for when you need to quickly write notes or write things down, because of course you don't have to lift your pencil as much, but in this modern age, how often like, I don't know when's the last time I actually took notes on a piece of paper. Even as I'm like my show notes that I use and reference when I'm doing this show, I, I write it down in the notes pad document that uh, Apple Macs have available to them uh, when I go ahead and prepare for this. That's what I'm writing it in. Or if it's on my phone, if I'm out and about and I hear like a political story or hear about something political that I want to make sure I talk about, I'll make a note my phone on the notes app. I, I Nobody uses paper anymore for notes. Now, signing their name in cursive while having a signature, you do still have to sign things in this modern day and age, though I can't think of a single time I've ever had to write something in cursive in the last years or had to write anything that was for public consumption in handwriting. I, I don't think that's ever, ever had to happen where I'd want flowy cursive, but also as well, um, signing your name. That one's kind of interesting. Uh, I do think obviously these printed signatures that we see a lot of these kids with are childish looking and unbecoming, but at the same time, you know, as cursive fades out, it's really not a big deal. I don't, I just personally, and I know I'm probably going to get a lot of emails about how important cursive is. And you can email me at info at the Andrew show.com. But I think if we all thought critically for like five seconds, we would think to ourselves that maybe we should just let cursive go ahead and die. Maybe it's just time to let it die. Uh, you know, computers are used a lot more. We text, we type, we don't really write notes and handwriting for public consumption. We don't need to really scribble very quickly anymore. And, and it's just, it's just outdated and that's okay. Technology advances. There was a time where cursive didn't exist y'all and that was created. So maybe it's just time to let it go, but just my opinion anyways, uh, but going into the real big bills here, there's, there's three bills here, four bills, uh, that really, really do like make a huge impact. And that'd be, uh, let's first start off with Senate Bill 168. Okay, so for those of you unaware, at our public schools, there's something called a, a site-based decision-making council, SBDMs, okay? So these site-based decision-making councils actually have like a lot of control over hiring and firing and curriculum. Uh, you know, they, they hire, fire principals, their uh, curriculum decisions, like, I don't know, um, I, I know I'm going to use this example later on, but like field trips, things like that, that is all a part of the site-based decision-making councils. And the way they're set up now is that you have two parents that are elected by the parents. You then have three teachers on the council elected by the teachers. And then you have one admin or the principal who sits as chair of the committee. So you, you don't even have close to a majority of parents, like literally parents can't get their way at all on anything. If they disagree with the curriculum, the parent representatives can't 
have they have no power to vote down despite the fact that it's their kids like it matters like it, you would say that parents should have more control over the curriculum at the school than the teachers do because after all the teachers uh, uh, it's not their kids. Right. And I know I hear all these people say, well, you should trust the experts. I hear you, uh, on that trust the experts thing. I'm not going to pretend like every single parent does know what's best for their kids. Obviously I know that's the case, but there's a real thing of like, who has to live with the ramifications of that. So like who has to deal with the fact that if you failed to make a child, if the schools failed to make a child, a, a well-adjusted, uh, adult who can function in the real world, who's really going, whose life is that going to affect more the third grade English teacher or the parent, the eighth grade gym class teacher or the parent, the 12th grade problem and stats teacher or the parent who's really going to pay the long-term repercussions outside the child for the failures of uh, like the curriculum being bad. Well, it would be the parents. So it, it's not as much about who's the expert as much as about who has to pay the most for the repercussions. And honestly, parents do. So what does this bill do? Well, first big thing it does is it moves that parents from instead of being two to three to three to three. You still have the admin, so you still have a little bit. You've got one more vote on, on the schools than you do anything else. But it does at least make it to where if the admin and the parents disagree or they can convince one teacher to disagree with the admin and, and teachers, well, then that can lead to... Uh, of course, a, a vote more so in the favor of the parents. Well, and, and the way it manifests itself, here's a perfect example. There was, um, I know this from a person who was on a site-based decision-making council. There was a situation that occurred on a field trip, uh, eighth grade, where there was some inappropriate behavior between a male and female student. And this was like an overnight, multiple hotel day field trip, right? And so come the next time around uh, for that decision, the parents at the school did not want that field trip to happen. They said, look, we don't want this field trip to happen. The majority of them don't. And, 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 you know, you could say, well, just if you don't want to go, don't send your kids to go. And so, yeah, they, they did. And the majority of them didn't. The amount of kids that went was so much smaller than it was the prior years. But despite that, the teachers on the SBDM council voted to have the, uh, field trip, the overnight field trip, that they used to do every year, still do, I guess. Anyways, because the teachers wanted to go on the field trip. They like the schools paying for them to go on this field trip, paying for the hotel rooms, everything else. So you ended up having almost as many teachers or more teachers than you had students on this field trip being paid for by the taxpayer. And because, and the reason why no parents went is because parents didn't even want their kids to go in the first place. But the site-based decision council, because it's majority teachers, overruled the parents' wishes and it created a real problem. But there's another thing this bill does. It also strikes a minority requirement that is within uh, current regulation too as well when it comes to site-based decision-making councils. And I'm talking about like they have actual racial quotas on these boards. And Senate Bill 168 seeks to deal with that. We'll talk about exactly how, what the legislation changes and how this becomes different, as well as dig into a few of these other very important bills after this short break. You're listening to The Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics. Want to reach out to the show? Feel free to email info at theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's info at theandrewshow.com. Feel free to yell at me about cursive all you want to. Just know if you thought critically, you would agree you should just die. But anyways, <laughs> we'll see you back here in a few short minutes. And you are back with the Andrew Cooperwriter Show here in this final segment. We are just talking about 
Senate Bill 168, part of the five bills on education that Senator Lindsey Tishner out of Oldham County recently dropped. This bill takes an aim at those site-based decision-making councils at all these schools. Perhaps you knew about them, perhaps you didn't. But every public school has a site-based decision-making council. Currently, is comprised of two parents elected by the parents, three teachers elected by the teachers, and one administrator. This bill seeks to move those two parents to three parents in order to give parents a little more of a chance to have their voices heard on the council. But the other thing Senate Bill 168 does is it also strikes this weird racial quota thing. So according to the current law, if a school is at least 8% minority population, then you have to elect at least one minority representative. And it has to come from both teacher and um Parents. So basically, if a school is at least 8% minority population and there's not already a minority on the SBDM, there's going to be a new election held for one additional parent and then also one teacher. And both have to be minorities. And if you can't find a minority in the teachers, well, the teachers can just select whoever they want to. But you have to elect a minority as long as it's at least 8% minority. Now, this is kind of weird. Considering the, the fact that the entire council as a whole, as it sits right now, now they can adjust, right? So it's a two to three ratio. So you could go up to six teachers and four parents or whatever you want to do, but it has to right now stay to that two to three ratio. This is just weird considering that, you know, even with the admin on there, that is only six people. So, but at 8% minority status, like that's not even, uh, you know, to require a chair, like, that's not even 8% of the current body. I mean, if you've got six people, one person would equal out to what, right around about 20, 18%. What is it? 18% probably somewhere right around there. I could be way wrong, but that's about 18%. So, um, I was off at 18%. Let's see. It's no, I'm not far off. Is it? 16 percent ish yeah okay i wasn't far off 16 17 percent ish okay so basically one person represents 16 to 17 percent of the sbdm so if you're trying to say like oh there needs to be representation of the minority well shouldn't that only kick in once they have enough of of a minority percentage to represent at least the voting power of one chair you suddenly give the minority population more voting power basically on the council if, you, if you're worried about you know racial representation i mean i'm not worried about racial representation but they're worried about racial representation so i mean shouldn't is it wouldn't that be what you do there i mean i don't know but it also too requires notification of elections which this is a big thing so if you're you have kids going to public school and you're listening to this you're like i didn't even know these existed they've existed forever these sbdms and you're like how do i get on how do i vote how do i take part in it well schools don't often tell you so this would require a notification of election and of course they do that because they want the right parents on board they don't want too many they're going to cause a problem so that is a major change it starts giving more control of the curriculum to the parents while at the same time allowing more opportunity for people to become involved in their kids education
Senate Bill 169 is a bill that would allow the recall of school board members. Right now in Kentucky, not a single elected position can be recalled. To which, you know, personally, my opinion, well, why stop at school board members? Let's allow any single elected representative to be able to be subjected to a recall vote. I think that's a great thing. And that should be what we go ahead and do. Then we move on to Senate Bill 170. This is a big deal here. So what Senate Bill 170 does is it creates a minimum amount of school board members based upon student body population. So right now, school boards are free to set as many school board members as they, as you know, was originally chartered or what have you, that they have on their uh, uh, council, they, they, choose the amount of school board members, and then that's it. And it has no bearing on how big the school district is. For an example, Garrett County has, I, th- I believe, five five members on its school board, but so does Fayette County Public Schools, which is significantly bigger. So what this bill does is it would require at certain intervals uh, an increase of population. So every 10 years, they take a look at the student body size, and then they'd go ahead and make and order you make an adjustment to your school board member number. So if you have 15,000 students or fewer, you have five members on the board. If you have 15,001 between 30,000 members, you shall have seven. If you have 30,000 members uh, between 45, not members, students, sorry, enrolled at the school, you'll have nine members of the board. If you're between 45,000 and 60,000, 11, and 60,001 to 75,000, 13. And if you're above 75,000, this would be 15. Now, what does this do, practically speaking? So let's take Fayette County Public School. Currently, it's five members. Well, according to their student body population, Fayette County Public Schools would grow by four members. They now become a nine-member body of the school board. Louisville right now has seven members. Under this bill, their school board would double almost to 15 members. Now, why is this so impactful? Why is this such a big difference? And and, and this is what's really key. Okay, so uh, a few things come into play here. First, when you have uh, these districts, you now have to have more districts. So instead of only having five districts, districts in Lexington, you'd have now nine, almost double. That means the district size becomes half. That now means the cost of elections are half. That's the first thing. And so this becomes very, very impactful when you figure that part of the reason why we have such liberal members on our school boards, outside of the fact they're nonpartisan races, is because the uh, teachers' unions have a financial incentive involved with the school board. Parents don't necessarily have as much of a financial incentive. You'd hope that, you know, obviously their kids getting a good education should be enough for them to care to donate to the school boards, but it's not, which I mean, but, you know, general citizens generally don't donate to candidates anyways, but anyways, um, but it's not there, but you do have these school boards that come in and can dump hundreds of thousands of dollars into races because they have a financial incentive. They make money off those races. Longtime listeners of the Andrew Cooperwriter Show know that I always say that don't, most donations are not donations, but they're investments. Now, if they're from the citizens, they're investments into their futures. If it's from a company, a corporation, a union, anything else, it's an investment in a monetary sense, and they do expect to be paid off. They do expect that investment to pay off in a monetary way, whether that's increased, of course, 
pay to their teachers. So in turn, that creates higher fees. Um, they're able to, if it's a union, they, they can go to the boards and get better, uh, you know, rules and regulations for their teachers and their employment and uh, different contracts. So, you know, those types of things encourage these school boards to get involved in these school races, but there's not a lot of money pushing on the other side. So by breaking up the districts in this way from five to now nine, almost doubling it in Fayette County, well, now it costs half as much. But that also means, too, that things like door knocking, grassroots efforts, you can you can run a campaign with less half the amount of money. And if you have a lot of volunteers, you could make a lot bigger difference than when it's twice as large. So that's a big part of it. But the other thing this affects on the election side of things and why and this is the reason why it's being done is because of gerrymandering. So when you have only five members of the Fayette County School Board, you can gerrymander it to make sure that the conservative areas of Lexington get overshadowed by the more liberal areas of Lexington. Same thing in Louisville. You can make sure. I mean, you've got seven members in Louisville. That's a big city. They can gerrymander that in such a way to make sure there's not huge conservative swaths where a, a district picks up, but they can offset it with liberal swaths in order to make sure that the liberals um, run the district. And remember, too, the school boards are the ones in charge of redistricting. So uh, they redistrict their districts, and then that in turn, they can now make sure that the liberals on the uh, uh, on the school councils, on, on the school boards, can remain. But take Louisville, for example. We say Louisville, Louisville's super liberal, but even even... With a partisan city council races, they still get Republican city council members and they still get Republican state house reps because there are Republican conservative areas of Louisville. There's Republican conservative areas of Lexington and they have no voice and no representation on any of these boards because they get gerrymandered out. So this would go ahead and make sure that these school boards, these these. Uh, uh, people can get gerrymandered out, but they could have a better chance of having a district that is conservative that represent their conservative beliefs on the board. So that's incredibly and very important. And then finally, something that allows superintendent firings by a majority instead of a four-fifths, and you don't have to ask for permission from the commissioner of education. So right now, school boards, before they can fire or hire superintendents, they have to ask permission from the commissioner of education at the state level. And then in order to fire them, they have to have a four-fifths majority, an 80% majority. Um, and so, you know, that creates a lot of situations of who's the commissioner of education working for, not the commissioner, the superintendent working for. The commissioner at the state, the person who has to sign off on their firing, or the school board and the parents. Well, under this, it would clear that up and say the commissioner is not in charge of firing, the school board is, and those who can choose to fire you are those that are in charge of you. Well, y'all, that's what we've got time for today on the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. Thank you all so, so much for joining me. We'll be back here tomorrow. Have a great rest of your day.